0: Hello and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and I'm joined by our news editor Nick Bostock and our senior reporter Luke Haynes. Coming up, we'll be looking at the fallout from the government's so called support package for general practice in England. We'll be talking about the BMA's plans to ballot GPs on different types of industrial actions they could take in protest to the controversial plans that fail to address the current workload crisis and could have the opposite effect of making things significantly worse. We'll also be looking at the response of some local healthcare leaders to the proposals and what the latest appointment data tells us about how access to general practice is currently working. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to Dr Amy Small, a GP in Lothian in Scotland, about her experience of living with long Covid. She talks to me about how long Covid has affected her life, her family and her job as a GP. And we have a bit of good news about booster vaccines. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Last month, the BMA's GP committee voted unanimously to reject the government's so-called support package for general practice and seek formal approval to ballot members on industrial action. As we discussed on the last episode of the podcast, rather than offering any tangible solutions that could help address the current workload crisis, the package instead provides £250 million in extra funding, but all tied to requirements for practices to deliver more appointments overall, and more of them face-to-face. This is despite the fact that GP practices are already providing a significantly higher number of appointments than before the pandemic. Plans to name and shame those practices with the lowest proportion of face-to-face appointments in particular provoked outrage. The BMA has said that rather than helping practices, the plans would increase workload and bureaucracy on GPs and their colleagues, reduce the number of appointments available and impact on the quality of patient care. Nick, quite a lot has happened in the last two weeks since we last discussed this on the podcast. So let's start with the ballot itself. When is this taking place and what do we know about what action GPs will be balloted on?
1: The BMA has come up with forms of industrial action it believes will have no impact on patient care and which it hopes can actually help practices to an extent by reducing red tape. Um, This is an indicative ballot. It's not a formal step towards industrial action at this stage. And it's not individual GPs, but practices that are being balloted. As far as we understand, there's one vote per practice. So practice teams or groups of partners will have to decide collectively how they wish to vote. As for what action will be on the table... One thing they'll be asked is whether they're prepared to disrupt the collection of data that could be used to name and shame practices over the proportion of appointments they provide face to face. This is aimed directly at countering one of the more controversial proposals in the access plan set out by NHS England and the government last month, which itself triggered the whole ballot plans. Um, Practices will also be asked whether they're prepared to ignore a contractual requirement to provide COVID vaccination exemption certificates, And they'll be asked about disengaging from the primary care network DES, which is the contractual framework that brings practices together into networks. And finally, they'll be asked about refusing to comply with a requirement to submit data on GP earnings, which the government is planning to use to publish the names of people working in general practice who earn more than £150,000. And in terms of timescales, electronic voting opened at the start of November The ballot will close on the 14th of November and results are expected to be made public around the 18th or 19th. It's also worth noting that uh, practices have already been encouraged by the BMA to take action in some other ways by potentially closing their patient lists, refusing work that falls outside the scope of the GMS contract and in particular rejecting work dumped on them by hospitals.
0: Yeah, you mentioned there that one of the things GPs will vote on is pulling out of these new pay transparency requirements. Um, GPs who earn over £150,000 in NHS income in 2019-20 have to declare their earnings by the 12th of November. So the deadline for the ballot is surely too late to impact on that declaration, isn't
1: it? The timing of the ballot does leave GPs in a really tough position around the pay transparency rules. As you mentioned, GPs or other practice staff earning more than £150,000 in NHS income have until uh, the 12th of November to declare it. And this is part of a plan for the government to publicly name people with earnings above this level. It's a plan that's infuriated GPs because the profession seems to have been singled out. These same rules are not being applied to other NHS contractors that may have similar earnings, like dentists or opticians, and also won't apply to hospital doctors. And as we've discussed, the, the ballot won't close until two days after the pay transparency deadline has passed. We also won't know the results of the ballot until a week after the deadline, and it's only an indicative ballot, as we've said. So there are obviously good reasons for GPs to consider refusing to comply with the transparency rules. They, they seem to have been targeted unfairly. The BMA says naming people with earnings over a certain level could trigger yet more abuse. Uh, but practices are likely to be in breach of contract if they don't report the earnings data. So some may feel that this is a risk they don't want to take outside of a formal industrial action framework.
0: Yeah, Luke, one interesting development in all of this that you reported on this week is the reaction of regional NHS bosses. Some of them have said they've got no intention of engaging with any plans that would effectively name and shame practices in their area that are struggling with access.
2: Yeah, that's right. So as part of the government's plans around access, integrated care systems were instructed to identify the 20% of GP practices in their area, offering the lowest proportion of face-to-face appointments. The plans noted that these practices would face immediate action with ICS's instructed to identify these practices by the 28th of October. However, when I spoke to sources at NHS Confederation's ICS network, they said that ICS leaders were concerned about the notion of naming and shaming these practices. They argued that it was likely to further demoralise a primary care workforce that was already frantic, um, in their words. They also said that some regional bosses were preparing to outright ignore the orders from NHS England handed down by the government, which was quite astonishing, really.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really significant story. I can't remember a time when NHS organisations pushed back against the national plan, effectively in defence of general practice in that way. Um, and, And frankly, it seems like the kind of stance that general practice has been crying out for the government to take in response to waves of media criticism, but which so far has not been forthcoming from the government.
2: Yeah, and I think I remember the BMA sort of saying at the times of the the plan's uh, publication that it would sort of further penalise those who needed um, the most help.
0: Yeah, there has been some talk, though, in various quarters of NHS England being prepared to make some concessions around the plans, you know, maybe possibly to head off this industrial action. What do we know about that?
2: Yeah, last week in The Guardian, it was reported that NHS England was willing to make, um, quote, significant concessions to the so-called GP support package to stave off the possibility of GPs taking industrial action um, after widespread dismay from the profession Um, So it was said that NHS England was preparing to back down over a few key parts of the plan, including instructions to name and shame GP practices offering low levels of face-to-face appointments. So that's what we've just spoken about. Um, But it was also reported that plans to impose targets on face-to-face appointments could be um, pared back. While um, it's also been said the health secretary will back a zero tolerance uh, abuse campaign. So again NHS England's willingness um, to make concessions on its joint access plans with the government just shows sort of how wrong they've got things.
0: Uh, you also watched um, Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid's first appearance in front of the Commons Health and Social Care Committee this week. What did he have to say for himself about all of this?
2: Yeah, so it was his first session, and it took all about it took all of about five minutes before Jeremy Hunt was telling him off for uh, avoiding questions, which is amusing. But um, but anyway, the Health Secretary came out yesterday and said that um, it's never been government policy, or in their plans to publish league tables of GP practices. He said that it, um, it yeah it wasn't policy, and that. He wasn't sure where the talk had come from. However, he did say that data around percentages of face-to-face appointments suffered by surgeries would be published on an individual practice level. He pointed out that this had already been agreed in the GP contract, which he said was negotiated in 2019 and that it was part of plans around offering greater transparency. Well, it may be well and good for the government to come out and say they won't publish league tables. However, data around percentages of face-to-face appointments will still be out there in the public domain, um, and it's important to acknowledge that um, there'll be nothing to stop others, thinking of some sections of the media here, um, mining that data and creating their own name-and-shame-style league tables, um, and that will be something of a concern to, to the profession.
0: Yeah, obviously, it's also worth pointing out that um, that contract agreement that was uh, negotiated in 2019 was well before the pandemic and well before the issue of face-to-face appointments was, was even something that was being looked at or considered and certainly not something that the media was hammering GPs about. Nick, you looked at the latest appointment data that came out last week. Can you talk
1: through what that had to tell us? What the figures show is that general practice is delivering an unprecedented number of appointments And that a huge number of them are face to face. GP leaders have said that the figures should put to bed once and for all the claim that practices are refusing to see people. Although, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to uh, have happened in in some parts of the press just yet. Uh, But to be clear, general practice delivered nearly 29 million appointments in September 2021. That's eight and a half percent more than in the same month in 2019. About 17.5 million of those appointments were face-to-face. Another half a million or so were delivered in person as part of the COVID vaccination campaign. And on top of this, practices delivered more than 10 million telephone appointments in September. That's three times the average monthly figure pre-pandemic. So these figures are extremely clear. General practice is working incredibly hard at the moment.
0: Another piece of news that came out of the BMA this week is that GP committee chair, Dr Richard Vautry, is intending to stand down. I mean, he'll be quite a familiar face to many GPs as he, he's been chair of the GP committee for four years. He was deputy chair for the four years before that. And he's been on the executive committee since 2004. What's he said about stepping down, Nick? And do we know what happens now with electing a successor?
1: As you said, Dr Vautry is a long-standing member of the BMA's GP committee. He's been a partner at a GP practice in Leeds since the mid-1990s and has been on the GP committee as a regional representative since 2001, so for just over two decades. He's held senior positions within the committee for a lot of that time. He was elected to, to chair the committee in 2017 after serving as deputy to the two previous chairs and worked as a contract negotiator for the, for the committee before that. He'll formally step down in a couple of weeks' time at a BMA meeting on the 18th of November, And because Dr Vautry is the chair of the GP committee for England as well as for the UK, there'll be a double election at that meeting to replace him in both of those roles. Uh, We've yet to see any detail of who will stand, but in terms of eligibility, these positions are open only to GP committee members. And the UK chair role can only be taken by a chair of one of the BMA's four national GP committees. So in 2017, once Dr Vaughtry had been elected to chair the committee for England, he was then elected unopposed as UK chair. So it'll be interesting to see whether this time round there's a challenge uh, from the chairs for Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland.
0: I'm delighted to be joined now by Dr Amy Small, who is a locum GP and Lothian in Scotland. Amy was a partner for 10 years in East Lothian until she became ill with long COVID last year. Alongside her locum work, she is also a consultant for health charity Chest Heart Stroke Scotland, which is providing advice for patients suffering from long COVID and has been advising the Scottish Government on support for patients with long COVID in Scotland. She now advocates for better services for patients affected by long COVID and is also aiming to raise awareness among other GPs about the impact the illness has. Thanks so much for joining me today, Amy. Thanks for having me. So could you start by telling us a bit about when you first caught COVID and what the initial illness was like?
3: Yeah, so I got ill on April 11th, 2020. Um, and in the beginning, I wasn't sure it was COVID because the first few hours I just had a headache and I had a slight fever, but it wasn't the magic 37.8 that everyone talked about. And it um, just kind of went about my daily business, but but just felt odd, actually. And it was the next day that I woke up and I had a proper fever. Um, And I had then found out that a colleague that I'd been in touch with a few days earlier, I'd been in contact with a few days earlier, had then tested positive for COVID. Um, And um, my husband got ill that day. And then my children each subsequent day after that. And then we got the cough around day six. Um, which which was later than I thought it was going to be. It was a more insidious onset of an illness rather than the flu that kind of comes and hits you out of the blue and you feel horrendous from day one. It kind of crept up on us, um, which I wasn't quite expecting. But um, it just, I mean, it typical sort of aches and pains all over my body. Um, felt really breathless. That was the thing was so different from flu or anything else I'd had before. Just felt really, really breathless. Um, and I had tinnitus and all sorts of other strange symptoms but predominantly for me the issue was fever and that was a fever that just didn't go away Um, and it kind of became obvious to me after a month of fever, that this was something a little bit different from, from what I'd ever experienced before. And I really wasn't sure what was going on. And it began to dawn on me that that this was something different.
0: Yeah. So when did you start to realise that something was wrong and you weren't getting better in the timeframe? Was it sort of after that month
3: and you were still feeling rotten and so it was about it was about three weeks in where I had a day of being really, really breathless. My rest rate was about 30. Normally it should have been sort of around 12 to 16. And all day I just felt horrendous and and I, and I kind of figured at that point I'd been hearing about blood clots and stuff and I started to panic and so I called 111 who got me seen up at the hospital and I, I had some tests done and they said no there are no clots but you know we are seeing a few people like you just go home and rest. That was three weeks in and four weeks in I was just losing my head because I hadn't left the house other than for a medical appointment um, in four weeks. So I emailed the colleague and just said if I go out am I going to be typhoid Mary or And infect everyone or, you know, can I, can I, am I still infectious? And they they said, oh, you're not infectious, but we need to see you because it's not normal to still have a fever after a month. Every single day was above 38. So it was at that point, infectious diseases asked me to get my GP to refer me, which they did. And I was seen probably about six weeks into the illness. And they did all sorts of weird and wonderful blood tests and blood cultures. And they repeated my swabs, which we knew would be negative at that point because it was so far down the line. Um, and they just said, we're not really sure what's going on. We're hearing about people like you. Um, we'll call you in three months and see how you are. And I was kind of just left to get on with it really at that point. And I think my brain wasn't really working that well, so I just accepted it and, and went home and, and got on with it. Um, but it was tough because having two little children and not being able to get anyone to help you, and both my husband and I have long COVID, You know, we were literally just like existing. Um and it was really then I realized that this this wasn't right you know that there was something much bigger than than me that was that was going on So what were the ongoing symptoms you were experiencing and how were they
0: affecting your day-to-day life
3: I guess one of the main things was the fever and that just made you generally feel rubbish yeah. um and then um it was really tachycardic so I began to notice that as I was just standing up to brush my teeth with an electric toothbrush I wasn't even having to work that hard My heart rate, I looked down at my watch because I thought, oh, I feel a bit breathless doing this. And and I've got one of these uh, Garmin watches and it it said that my heart rate was 110, brushing my teeth. And I was like, I never paid a huge amount of attention to my pulse in the past. I knew that my resting heart rate was in the high 50s because I was fit and active. And that was normal for me. I thought, this is odd. And I couldn't walk up the stairs without stopping um, because I was just so breathless and aching all over head to toe myalgia. And so those were the big things for me. Headache was a really big feature. Um, and that's something a lot of people with long COVID complain about, it's headache. And that was just their everyday, sometimes migraine and sometimes just a background headache. There's tinnitus and vertigo. Um, so quite often very dizzy. Um, and then it was weird, like four months down the line, I lost my sense of smell. That just happened a lot later, but only luckily for me for a month or so. I know for others, they have had it much longer. And then I had a deafness in one ear for several weeks, just really couldn't hear well out of that ear at all. So it was really weird because it would kind of come in waves and definitely something sort of neurological going on. And then I realized every time I kind of pushed myself, my fever would go up. So if I walked my kid to nursery, my temperature then that afternoon would be 39. And to me, that was just bizarre. I'd never experienced that. And I think the other big thing is brain fog. So my head just didn't work properly. I just felt like I was in a haze. I would often lose my words. And then things like if I would make a a recipe for something, I would always leave out at least one ingredient. And that was never some, that wasn't me. Um, And then if I pushed myself too far, hard, my speech would start to slur. I actually physically couldn't articulate. And that was really disconcerting.
0: So when did you sort of work out that you had long COVID? How did you come across the term long covid and work out that's what you were suffering from?
3: So it was actually on social media. Um, Paul Garner is a doctor who's got long COVID who wrote an article quite early on in the BMJ about his symptoms and I remember reading it and showing it to my husband and going this, this is us, this is what we've got Um, and it was hugely reassuring to know that we weren't the only ones and it was on that, around that time that the term long COVID, it was born on Twitter. Um, and so I had, I'd been following people, various people on Twitter, seeing what was going on there. Uh, then I think it must've been about June time that a doctors with long COVID group popped up on Facebook. Um, and that was just such a relief for me to find lots of other colleagues who were going through the same thing. Um, and um, able to discuss it with people and, and, and get that peer support because that's something that that was very lonely in those early days not really knowing what was happening. So how did you work out
0: what worked for you to get better because it seems to me that lots of different things work for lots of different people and like you say it depends on what symptoms you've got. Did I mean, were you just really laid up for a really long time or did you start to get progressively better?
3: I I, I was a typical type A personality that kept pushing through and was actually making myself so much worse without realising it. And it was about June time that I was itching to get back to work. I guess my baseline had got a little bit better. You know, I wasn't as feverish and I wasn't as tired. I was still having to nap um, at least once or twice a day, but I was much better than I wasn't in bed the entire day. So it was at that point that I'd contacted Occupational Health and said, I really would like to get back to work, but they wouldn't speak to me because I still had fever. So for them, that was a complete red line because in terms of infection control, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't fathom that, that, that I wasn't a danger to others. They just said, don't do it. But I spoke to my colleagues and I was like, listen, guys, I'm just, I want to do something. I'm, I'm desperate to get back. Maybe maybe it was all in my head. Maybe I could just, you know, make it better. So I, I went and did half a day at work. So the first day I did half a day of paperwork. The next day I did half a day of just normal surgery. And that left me bedbound for 10 days. Um, I have never experienced anything like it before. I literally couldn't chew cereal because my jaw hurt so much. It was so fatigued. I could hardly speak. I could I could hardly lift my arm to drink water. And it was at that point that I thought, oh, God, you know, this is huge. And I finally understood that cognitive fatigue had such a huge physical impact. And that's something I'd never really got my head around before with patients. And it was at that point that I contacted a friend of a friend who had ME and said, I don't want to get ME and I'm really worried this is where I'm going. What can I do to get better? And she had really helpfully talked to me about pacing. She had suggested I'd see a nutritionist. She'd also recommended osteopathy for this weird Perrin technique thing, a lymphatic drainage. Um, and I just thought, right, I'm just going to throw whatever I can at this to make it better. And so I think a big thing for me was the nutritional support. That was really, really helpful. I saw this amazing nutritionist who got me to give up sugar. And I had no idea how A, inflammatory sugar was in terms of fever and all that stuff. Actually, the fatigue, not having the peaks and troughs of, you know, sugar hits, caffeine hits, you know, cutting out caffeine, cutting out alcohol, everything to just let my body just recover. And that was a, a turning point in terms of realizing that, that I needed to look after myself and and eat better and and then it was actually a, a patient with ME on Twitter who'd recommended a really good pacing book for people with ME. Yeah, it was it was really that 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 massive relapse that spurred me into the kind of more self help stuff that I did. Um, so I just want to come back to what you said about pacing. Do most GPs understand what pacing is? Well, I don't think so. I mean, I've not heard about. Maybe before, they're better GPs than I am, but I certainly didn't. I just thought <laughs> pacing meant to do it more slowly. Um, and I wasn't, it wasn't until I'd, I'd, I'd got this book um, on pacing that I really understood. And, and, and I always use this cooking analogy, and, and I, I learned that from, from my own experience. And I sort of went off to the kitchen, and I learned that I had to sit, not stand to peel my carrots and then go back to the living room and rest. I would then go back a bit later and sit to chop the carrots and then go back and rest. And then I could go back and cook the bloody carrots and learn that, you know, actually pacing is is, is that, it's breaking your day down into chunks, planning your day, so even if, and I think sounds very strange when you're ill because you're like, well, what have I got to plan? I'm ill, you know, what, what am I going to prioritise? I'm ill, you know, and actually it was like, okay, well, if I'm going to have a shower and know that I've got to be out and maybe have a phone call with a friend, I can't do those three things in a row. I've got to plan in rest breaks between that. So, and for those who are super ill, well, maybe I will brush my teeth and then go back and rest and later on go and do the mouthwash. You know, it, it, it's it's about just basically breaking everything down and planning rest breaks around it. And once you can do that and you understand that and learn that, it's really, really hard, though, because it just goes against every grain of my personality that, you know, exists. But but once you learn that, you then learn, I think, to have a much better quality of life, even if it's quite restricted, you then just don't feel ill all the time because the more you push through, you just poisoning yourself effectively. Um, and so for me that was that was quite revolutionary. And I think that's where GPs need to need to learn more about what pacing is if they don't know. I mean, one of the things you you have spoken about before is obviously there did come a point where you did actually
0: lose your job as a GP partner. I mean, are you okay to talk about that?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me that and the reason I talk about it is because. Well, for several reasons. One of the reasons I think it's important that we understand how much long COVID impacts us beyond the illness, you know, that the massive ramifications. And, you know, I'm lucky as long as I'm well enough to work, I will always be in work, you know, with with hemorrhaging GPs. So that that, for for me, that's not an issue. Um, But, you know, you think about Joe Bloggs, who's who's been a labourer for 25 years and that's all they've ever known. And their work is very physical and they lose their job. They're completely scuppered. And, and we know that our benefit system isn't fit for purpose. We know that people won't qualify for PIP and other things because it's an invisible illness that waxes and wanes. And that system is deeply flawed. So for one reason, United, you know, if a GP can lose their job, then actually, you know, this is this is huge. And when we look at the statistics, the number of people with long COVID, you know, we think 10 to 14 percent of people that got COVID developed long COVID. This is a societal issue that we need to look at. So that's one reason why I talk about it. The other reason I talk about it is that that's also what made me discover an underlying problem with long COVID that I didn't know much about. And so it was at my last meeting with my partners that I I, I was pretty sure I was going to lose my job. And I was really anxious before the meeting, understandably. So I thought, well, I had some out of date beta blocker from when my father was dying. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to take that because anything can help right now to get through this, this horrible meeting. And I noticed that I felt less breathless generally. Um, And that day I walked up the stairs without stopping and it was just bizarre. It was like a sort of light bulb moment. And I've been reading about POTS, so this postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome, and I'd been reading about links to that and long COVID and how people were getting diagnosed with this And I had been tachycardic throughout, and I had noticed that if I did push myself and my my heart rate went higher, that I was then more unwell with higher fever and more breathless. So I phoned my GP after the meeting and said, look, I really wonder if I've got POPs and and, um, off the back of this self-management, whatever, diagnosis, could I try a a different longer-acting beta blocker? And she said, absolutely. And for me, that was a massive turning point because within two weeks, of the actual cutoff date of my job, I started locoming again because I was well enough. So, you know, that that was huge. And, and I think that's where I realized that actually we need to know more about these underlying associated illnesses that people with ME and other people have been talking about for a long time, but GPs just don't know much about. We're not taught about it at medical school. We're not, it's not on the GP curriculum. You know, so um, for me, that was a really big turning point. And that's also why I talk about that whole period, because that was a discovery and what got me better. How was it that you came to lose your job as a partner? Yeah, so we had a six month cutoff clause in our partnership agreement um, that stated um, if you were unable to fulfill your partnership duties over a six month period, the others could vote unanimously to, to expel you from the practice. I guess I was just naive to think that even though we did all get on really well, we were very close team, we worked really well together, we socialised outside of work, you know, when your back's up against the wall and you're exhausted and you're you, they've all been working through the pandemic, that, you know, actually for them, they thought I was going to get ME and I was going to be a disabled partner. And they, they, at that point, couldn't take that risk. Um, and it was just sad because I think, you know, I felt very betrayed and I think I also just felt that it was very short-sighted. Um, and history will show that I got better quite quickly and and that was fine. But I think the big issue was that I'd had a big occupational health review that showed a very slow phased return um, that could have taken up to five months and that just made it very difficult. So um, I wasn't wasn't well enough at the six-month point to go back. How long was
0: it from when you first got ill until you were able to go back to work as a fully functioning GP?
3: It was six and a half months. So
0: yeah. So some of the things you talked about there and the treatments and things that have worked for you, some of that obviously was medication. Um, and I think there's a lot of GPs that don't really understand that there are some medications that can be given to people with long COVID to help some of the symptoms. What do you think it's important for GPs to know about long COVID?
3: I think it is about... <laughs> reading between the lines and not getting too bamboozled with all the symptoms and trying to focus on systems in a way that we always have so trying to remember that you know breathlessness isn't always respiratory you know we we have patients who come and see us who are breathless so we think okay well I'll do a chest x-ray and um, some of them get blood clots ruled out and other things like that and then they think okay there's no lung problems off you go but actually in my case the, the, the breathlessness was related to POTS, which some would say is neurological, some would say it's cardiological, but you know, it's trying to remember there are other causes. So it's trying to keep an open mind, trying to be curious about the symptoms that your patient has. So I would say, um, go away and learn about POTS. Learn about MCAS, muscle Activation Syndrome, which is something I'd never heard of before, but it's where people are having strange reactions as a consequence of COVID. They're intolerant to um foods they've got lots of gastro problems they're having weird um, reactions skin rashes um, and finding that actually antihistamines can be very helpful and low histamine diets can be very helpful so it's trying to not lump us into that oh too difficult don't go there bracket but actually trying to be curious and trying to read around it but it's difficult because there aren't any very clear evidence-based guidelines at the moment so it's about trying to get that information out which is why I've been doing a lot of sort of talking and advocating because actually you know we need to go and seek out this information and, and we need to hopefully eventually come up with some decent educational material for doctors but I understand at the moment it's difficult to publicize that because of the lack of clear evidence.
0: Going forwards how much do you think long Covid should be a condition that would be managed by GPs and how much do you think it should be something that's managed by a sort of bigger specialist team?
3: Ultimately, I think it will be a condition that's managed by GPs in the long run once we've got more support out there and information for GPs to have the tools to handle it. So I think at the moment, yes, we are relying on specialists because we don't have the advice, the the evidence base, the, the guidance there um, so yeah, I can see in maybe five, six years' time, GPs will will have more of a more of an idea once we've got that there. But I think ultimately we're always going to have to have access to physio, OT, psychology support, which is why I'm I'm very keen to base models on, for example, the Hertfordshire model run by Dr. Master where it's a GP-led service embedded in a hospital setting with access to a multidisciplinary team. So she's brilliant because she's got the GP holistic um, approach, but has at her fingertips access to CT scans if she needs it, MRI scans if she needs it, advice from specialists who've seen the sort of more complex patients, Um, And so really, that would be the model that I'm trying to push and trying to get into Scotland, because I think ultimately, yes, it's a GP that has probably the best insight into that holistic approach. But it's sort of GP plus, if you like, with the access to the other investigations. Um, And unfortunately, at the moment, GPs just don't know about it, enough about it. And and everyone's just treading water and drowning in day to day work anyway to then have the space, then go away and learn more about something else that's new.
0: is very difficult. What would you say to GPs if they've got patients who come in with long COVID? um, What do you think the most important thing GPs should bear in mind? I think
3: listen to your patients, let them tell their story. You know, I think particularly for those of us that went through this in the first wave, we did this very much alone. You know, and I think we were told to stay at home and we did. A lot of people, um, you know, suffered at home. And we know now that those people would have been treated in hospital. Um, And I think it really is about listening to their story. There's a lot of um, physical issues that I think we need to sort of underpin. I think we need to listen, listen to the emotional impact that it's had on people's lives. I think... This is where we just have to keep curious, have to keep learning, have to keep reading, communicating, asking questions with our from colleagues, you know, trying to learn from each other about what we're seeing. Um, but above all, just have that empathy there.
0: Have you come across quite a
3: lot of other doctors
0: and nurses or health professionals who've been really affected by long COVID? Do you think it is becoming a big sort of occupational health issue for the NHS potentially?
3: So, um My understanding from ONS statistics is that there are 122,000 health and social care workers who've had time off sick due to long COVID. So, you know, that number screams big. On the other side, um, in my work with the BMA, so I'm a very active BMA member, I sit on various committees, I've been trying to help uh, doctors who are affected get support from the BMA. There are several GPs I'm aware of who've lost their partnerships there are salary doctors who are now looking at losing their jobs. There are salary doctors in hospitals who are looking at losing their jobs or you know, having real issues. So there are certain constraints within the NHS that are frustrating in terms of phased return to work. It's a standard four week phased return or you lose pay. Now, I would love to be able to square that circle, to be able to get trust, to, to look at, you know, prolonged phase returns when people are paid, because this is the big issue is the income factor. So it's actually, they're not in a doctor's interest to do a phase return over a four week period, because they may well then get better pay for a longer time with their offset completely. But then you get to that rub point of, well, I need to get back to work and I want to get back to work, but I can't do it in four weeks. And then what do you do? So charities like the Cameron Fund, which support GPs, um have seen a rise in people contacting them. I certainly did contact them because um, at the point when I lost my job, my husband's salary was about to go to half, um, and my roof was leaking, and we were in the pre- in the process of remortgaging. And it was just a, a you know a, a, a bombshell that hit our family, and I just didn't know what we were going to do. You know, were we going to have to sell our house? What were we going to do? And they provided amazing financial um, advice for me. I actually didn't need their help in the end because I managed to start working. But so the charities are certainly getting more contacted. Um, and I certainly think, you know, amongst the bigger healthcare professionals, I suspect, you know, amongst nurses, physios, et cetera, this is, you know, um, an on- going to be a bigger ongoing issue. But until we can get that phase return thing squared, it's going to be very difficult to get people back into the workplace in a way that they are well enough to do their job properly and not perpetuate their illness um, going forward by pushing through, so that that's a bigger piece of of work that that people look at. I think the other issue in England particularly is that if people are off longer, they can apply that the practice can apply to the CCG for reimbursement. Um, but that's very area dependent and very depends on who's sitting where and um, the BMA is saying this is really a job for the NHSE to sort out Um, and NHSE is sort of like well we are sorting it out because the CCG sort it out but you can imagine on an individual level it's not working so um, that's a really really big problem for, for individuals. Your your health now? Are you kind of are you better
0: now? Do you think, or, or is long COVID? Is that something you've just got to live with for a really long time? Do you think?
3: If you'd asked me that about six weeks ago, I would have told you I'd recovered. I'd managed to exercise regularly. I was exercising five times a week. I'd taken myself off my medication. I was feeling great. I then had the booster, and that caused a big relapse for me. But you know, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Do you get the booster, or do you get COVID. You know, either which way, you know. And and I think that for me was a real kick in the teeth because it set me right back. I was back to daily fevers. I was really breathless. I was really tachycardic again. Yeah. And I couldn't I couldn't work that week and I lost income. And and if that was a really that was really hard. And then it made me realize, yeah, this this isn't something that's just going to go away. And it is it is still there. So um, I'm back on my medication. I just started exercising again this week a bit. And I'm just going to have to take it slowly and and, and pace um, back to to health. But um, I suspect it will be something that will be around probably for, uh, I I can probably get my head around a couple of years. I don't know that I can get my head around much more than that. And I think that's where we have to look to the ME community. You know, these poor people who they call themselves the missing millions, and they are, you know, they've just been left neglected Um, put in that ME box and off you go and I think you know I look at them and I think gosh we have so much to learn from them and so much you know strength we can gain from what they've experienced and actually you know this this is time to change you know and this is what I say in every group you know I was saying it with Scottish government repeatedly if we can get this right for people with long COVID we can get this right for so many other conditions you know that Hertfordshire model can be applied to many illnesses. It doesn't have to be just long COVID. If we can get the benefit system to recognize invisible waxing and waning illness, you know, actually that's really important. If we can change phase returns in the NHS to accommodate chronic illness, again, you know, it's, a, it, 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 it's not just about long COVID, it's about chronic disease. And, and I think we, we need to change our attitude to it and we can't just keep ignoring it.
0: Thanks so much to Amy for talking to me this week. I'm really grateful to her for speaking candidly about her personal experiences. We've put a link to some resources to anyone who is affected by long COVID and some more information on pacing in the description for this episode. So we've just got time for our regular good news and this week it's that latest figures show that over 8 million people across the UK have now received their COVID-19 booster jab. After some concerns that the booster programme was getting off to a slow start, they're a sign that things have started to accelerate in the past week or so, which is all good news. The figures show that 820,000 people received their vaccine on Friday, Saturday and Sunday last weekend. Of course, general practice has really been at the forefront throughout the vaccination programme. And that's no different now we're in this booster campaign. Another positive is that vaccine confidence is high, with data from the Office for National Statistics showing that 94% of those aged 50 to 69 say they would get their COVID-19 booster if offered, which rises to 98% for those over 70. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice at gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and Luke and to Dr Amy Small for speaking with me this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, you can get in touch on Twitter by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.